HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more. And if it's for you, sign up. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And here on A Taste of the Past, we talk often about recipes and cuisines that tell us so much about the culture and life of a place at a particular time. And if any of you have ever attempted to make a dish from an old, I mean, very old recipe, such as a a manuscript cookbook, then you know that it takes some reading between the lines and learning about the history of a place and time, as well as a lot of guesswork on measurements, to in order to recreate a dish that is some facsimile of what the original was like. Well, my guest today, Karima Moyer-Noki, spends a lot of time and research doing just that with historical Italian food. And she uses uses this experience and her studies to conduct what she calls the reconstruction of Italian sociocultural history through the lens of food. As she writes, and I kind of have paraphrased here, we experience history with our senses. We put our hands in the pasta. We smell the heady spices of the Middle Ages and we hear the cheese balls crackle as they fry and watch as the past comes together on a plate. Really got a picture of that. (laughs) And over the past year or so, Karima has focused very specifically on regional pasta and did, I guess, like about 50 posts of some of the lesser... 50 posts. 50, okay, 50 posts um, of some of the lesser known but important traditional forms. And this year she intends to do even more from a more historical perspective. Although, as she says, the two are often inextricable. Karima Moyer-Noki, born and educated in the U.S., has lived and worked in Italy for the past 30 years. And she's joining us today from Italy by computer. And she is a tenured professor at the University of Siena, as well as a lecturer for the Master in Culinary Studies at the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. Her research explores the effective political and economic implications of the invention of traditions. She lectures internationally about issues related to Italian food history, as well as holding classes and demonstrations about the preparation of historical dishes. Welcome, Karima. 
Hi, Linda. It's really great to be here in this sort of situation where I can be in Italy the last time I saw you. Um, I came to your studio in New York. That's right. That's right. And I think we were talking about your book, which I now have to mention because I didn't do that originally, is that you are the author of two books, um, Chewing the Fat, An Oral History of Italian Foodways from Fascism to Dolce Vita, and the book for which you were in the studio talking to me about was The Eternal Table, A Cultural History of Food in Rome. And mm. it's it's so great to, to be able to talk to you again, uh, even though we couldn't meet up last time I was in Rome. It was just a very brief time. Um, mm. But you live um, you live near Siena, right? Well, I live in uh, Città di Castello, which is in Umbria. I teach at the University of Siena, but there is a branch in Arezzo, which is 45 minutes away from me, whereas Siena is an hour and a half. That's uh, that's convenient for sure. <laughs> well, you know, and you and so much of your work has been on um, not only studying, writing about the history of the food, especially Eternal Table. That was, you know, a huge work. Um, <laughs> but you really cook the food. I mean, you, as you just said in that that uh, phrase that I read, that you really get your hands right in there in the dough. Um, does Tell me a little bit about this, the reconstruction, or as you call it, um, eating history. Tell me a little bit about how you how you apply that to recreating this Italian um, socio-cultural uh, socio history. Yeah, um, historyphagy is a word that I coined myself. Um, the history part is clear, and phagy refers to eating. So it can also be applied to geophagy, for example, is eating um, dirt, essentially, and right. um, and <clears throat> monophagy means that your diet only allows for, for one specific food. And so this is um, a, a, a engaging with history through eating and the experience, the olfactory experience of taste and smell, and as, as well as you had said from that piece, um, hearing the food as it's being prepared, the, the smell of it, the appearance of it, the texture of it um, in your hands when you're preparing. And that's, that's all part of that experience of history that I um, am aiming to create so that the historical experience of food doesn't remain something that is the haunt of scholars and um, in food studies programs, but is something that we, it's, it's another dimension of enjoying food and tracing it through, um, you know, favorite dishes. For example, on my website, I have Roman macaroni. Um, macaroni, however, in this sense, being these long noodles. And they are made with um, bread that's been soaked in goat's milk, mixed with flour and, and some egg and rose water, which was very historically important. Um, so you feel all that and squeeze the, the bread that's been soaking in the goat's milk, um, mixing it then with your hands and just having that, that total experience of um of history and and then also communing with it by then eating it. eating it right i mean it to so. <laughs> to just read you know in in a vacuum of you know this mm. history i mean to take to be able to actually 
you know, attempt, not everybody's going to, you know, be interested in wanting to cook, but how could they not want to taste what they're reading about? You know, it's, it's, it's always beyond me. And obviously a lot of times it's impossible, but you're, you're, when I do, when I do historical dinners, it's such a joy to, uh, to share that kind of thing and take that, that history trip together with people who haven't necessarily prepared the food. But um, then having someone, for example, who who pairs the wine and then uh, people reading certain things that they've looked up so that it, it's it's it really revives that concept of conviviality. Right. Right. It's just it. And I have to say, if anyone who wants wants to take a look and people <laughs> people who know your Instagram feed, you know, are addicted to it, I'm sure. Um, It's your Instagram feed is at historical Italian food. And I would, I'm going to go to the edge saying that it's almost food porn. I mean, it's almost, it's almost (laughs) pasta porn. It is, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, And I'm just, I will watch it without the sound and then I'll put the sound on and hear the music or your, you know, your instructions and your voices. I mean, it's very, very well done. And um, it's, you know, in today's world with, you know, Instagram, I almost called the show pandemic pasta, but I thought that was not doing it. Yeah, that was doing it a dishonor. (laughs) But people are so, I mean, what, you know, a lot of people who have been, you know, uh, stuck at home, they have gone to making, of course, we all know about the sour bread craze, but a lot of people are also learning to make their own pastas and, and just, you know, cooking dishes that they will see listed. And your Instagram feed goes much further is another step because you are really teaching us about history. You're really, and you're really instructing us then how to make these dishes. What, I mean, how did you come to do this? I mean, what, what, inspired you to do this on Instagram? Um, well, the same thing with my website. I mean, I started my website and started going on Instagram at the same time. Um, I'm developing a project around pasta. Um, I, I also wanted to promote uh, the historical meals that I, that I do, that I prepare. Um, but I've I've started on a, a specifically um, a specific project in pasta and in historical pasta, regional pasta. A lot of people doing regional, but I l- want to look at it through the lens of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really was a complement to that and to um, get people interested, which was at the same time going to motivate me to continue doing my work. Um, and so I, and, you know, I, I say to people, people, people will write to me and say, oh, this is just so lovely and thank you. And, and I say that um, this is what makes it worth it to me. So bringing that to people and sharing, it's like now we can't, I can't have a historical meal um, out or at my home or travel. Um, and I do it now through, through Instagram. And so there is, um, I'm, I'm very pleased about the interest and and it's also part of it as well is a um, that I would like to develop some of my work then into another uh, my third book, and these days it's it's important to show that you have a presence on on social media, and so there is also a very pragmatic aspect to it as well. 
Well, um, of course, people who listen to my show regularly know that I do a lot of shows on Italian food, and and I've done <laughs> quite quite a few on on pasta, history of history of the noodle, really, and and of course we could do tons of shows on that because it's it's such a foggy history and foggy area, um, and you have really focused more on let you know and saying, well, let's talk about let's really get to the point of where it's it's pasta, but so. Karima, what would you, I mean, a lot of these forms of, of, of the dough, as you say, rolled out dough and, and, and whatever, except for Horace, or, you know, calling it a, you know, a pasta. What, what is some of the oldest known pasta that we can actually call pasta? Well, one of the oldest is um, testaroli, which is said to date back to the Etruscans. Um, there are unreliable sources. I like to look at those as well, but um, just to get the idea. But there are unreliable sources that also say it dates back to the Bronze Age um, when there was this, this porridge that was poured over hot stones. Because the way that this is made, now this is something that, that is Etruscan, so we're talking about Tuscany, and the, in particular, the Lunigiana area. Um, and the way that this is made is it's not rolled out, but it's a batter that is poured onto a round griddle that has been heated uh, very hot over, over um, usually beech wood. And this is how they do it when they do a, a historical reconstruction of this. So you have what's called a testo, a testum, which is something that existed in Roman times. Um, on top of that, you put a, a domed uh, lid, which has also been heated over this over the fire. Pour the water and flour batter in, cover it up, and then it will cook itself. So when it's done, you scrape it out of the testum, you leave it to cool, it gets cut up into uh, rhomboidal shapes, which is also a shape that was kind of mystical and, and important for the time. Um, and then it, it, it's, it's a cool pasta, but not a dried pasta. And so it's kind of like a bread, but it doesn't finish there because the way that it's cooked then is that you boil it in water and and it's dressed these days with a very rudimentary pesto made with basil and basil and olive oil and a little bit of cheese. So and, and this is kind of the link between uh, the past and now that has had a continuation that um, that can be traced a little bit more clearly. However, however, again. Um, Pasta came about, the linguistic the terminology points towards lasagna as something that is rolled out and then cut up um, and and cooked, yes? Yeah. Well, often um, a lot of the old lasagna that we, that, you know, we read about in old texts, um, or they referred to the noodle as a, a lasagna, or, as uh, was a sweet dish. Is that something you came across? There are a lot of pasta dishes that um, have sugar. Now, part of what you might be talking about is, is the um, a very intense appreciation and use of sugar as you're getting into the Middle Ages, which was, which was 
as as most things are about food. Um, it's about class. It's about showing who you are, showing what you own, showing what your prowess, your economic prowess is. So, um, so for example, when we get to Maestro Martino, um, his pasta has uh his which which his pasta noodles which are um like tagliatelle they also have sugar on them the dish that i was talking about before um bartolomeo scappi roman macaroni it has sugar but it it's not because it was a dessert um but because that was there wasn't a distinction between savory and and sweet Right, like like the in, the very expensive spices that one would use to show off, and right. So sugar was a it, exactly sugar was part of it, and sugar was sugar was considered um, sugar was considered a spice anyway, mm-hmm. as well. Exactly right, um, but as you said, yeah, I mean lasagna was you know there are a lot of different dishes, and you know, and and then continued on um, through Apicius, right? And you'll see a lot of in that in the first few centuries. Um, AD, a lot of um, a lot of lasagna type dishes, a lot of layered pasta dishes, or yeah. And important to remember as well about lasagna that um, it's both a pasta shape and a um, and a dish, so that it mm-hmm. would later develop a, a, a into becoming the concept of something that was layered. Layered, right? Um, but you also have have noodles, which are called lasagne, and um, they're three fingers wide. Uh, my fingers are very small, so, but, uh, you know, just think about that. And um, and it's a long noodle that was then cooked, but like a very, a very wide pappardelle. So those were also lasagne. And then all of the different things that are called sagne, um... And so the end, the, the end of the word, also, excuse me, excuse me, the end the, of the right, word right. lasagna. So the lasagna. Right. right. Which tend to be smaller patches of, um, of lasagna, but then I'm, I'm getting very specific here. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm and there, and they came in various different shapes, right? Right. Different shapes and, and, um, um, there's an interesting recipe from 1390, the form of curry um, English book, which has a, a recipe for um, macaron, which talk about the lasagne shape. Okay, now that's a, also a heraldic form, which is the shape of a diamond. Um, so, and these were as well, kind of put on the platter in layers with with butter and and cheese. Um, and this is a mention of a recipe that appears um, a- around the same time that the first recipe is appearing in, in Italian. So and I have this theory about um, about when the first Jubilee years were starting in that sort of exchange, as well as the international Gothic. But it's interesting that this pasta dish called macaroon was already in 1390 um, in England. Right. Yes, indeed. I mean, especially to be put in that book in the form of the, the form of curry, the name of the book, as you mentioned. Mm. Um, that's, that is, that's really quite interesting. Um, when the... 
um, pasta was not always just hand rolled and and handmade. They almost had, I mean, they had groups of people, or as you mentioned, guilds of people, um, so that it was almost mechanized from a very early age. Is that correct? Well, you have the, um, you're, you're, if you jump up then to um, the 1500s, then you have the, you're starting to have the separation of guilds. And the Macaronai and the Vermicellai um, are, are separating from millers and bakers and actually becoming their own thing. Um, mechanized is going to take a while to, to develop. However, the one of the first indications, of course, this is relatively well known if anyone knows their, their Italian um, history, is the mention by Al Idirisi in Sicily of um, the mention of pasta that he is noting the commercial production and shipment of pasta already in the 1100s, so in right. the 12th century. Right, that's what I was referring um, to, actually, right? Uh, okay, right, right. So Ali Dirisi, he was the um, geographer, cartographer for Roger II in Sicily, when previously Sicily had been dominated by, by um, the Arabs, for which there's, there's this speculation about um, whether or not it was the Arabs who had developed pasta, but that's a very sticky kind of situation there. Right. Well, that, in fact, that, debated. that was something that I, I kind of figured this would be, I would focus only on the Italian making of pasta because then we get into, just as you mentioned, and yes. I, um, you know, people saying, well, no, it was the Chinese. Uh, they found some old noodles that were made with, uh, with um, uh, some other kind of grain. Um, and then some say, no, no, it's the Arabs because we had, you know, similar dishes, but, but, but Italy really kept this tradition um, specific to their cuisine and and it does have a very specific history and when about when do we see um some of these more um specific shapes coming that have endured through through the centuries so there's a huge problem in italian culinary history which is this that the first cookbook that exists um in 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 italy is apicius and then there is not another one, and I say this with trepidation in my heart, um, there's not another one for centuries. Not only is there not another cookbook, but the Dark Ages were truly dark for culinary history in Italy, um, as far as pasta goes, that there's no mention in any text um, until you get to the, until you get to well into the, the um, high Middle Ages. Mm, so you're yeah. getting into, to and that's when the mentions start. But so, and you can tell by the way it's being mentioned and the the names that are being used um, that a certain amount of development has already taken place that we're unable to trace, except to say that the the first time it's mentioned that we have is maybe um, the the first mentions are starting at the end of the 13th century. So I hope in my lifetime that some other texts are going to surface uh, because it's just far too long to to not have any information whatsoever. Someone must have written something. Right. 
Um, but 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 you have so you, so you have these the regional shapes. But you have at that at that point the um, the macro shapes, which um, you have the um, the lasagne. So the macro shapes are lasagne, gnocchi, which also being given their rudimentary kind of way that they're made are said to maybe have existed before the lasagna, which actually requires rolling things out. Gnocchi, of course, not with potatoes because the Colombian exchange had not, it was, was centuries um, away. Right. But um, uh, then long pasta, taglietelli, the regional shapes, the ravioli, pasta parcels, stuff was starting to be put inside pasta. And that is a little bit more reliably traceable to the Arab tradition, mm-hmm. where ravioli is said to have arrived um, through the uh, trade and, um, a- and mobility that's going on with, um, with the Arab nations, or what we would call them at that point. Um, and it arrived wrapped. So it arrived as a pasta parcel with stuff inside, Um, not necessarily boiled, but, and then it went through a period of time where the raviolo was actually the morsel or the, the entity that was inside the pasta. And so it lost the pasta and it lost that meaning for a period of time and predominantly became the um, the little dumpling thing, and so that was ravioli. Uh, after that, then it started late Middle Ages to go back into its pasta wrapper because people found how how delicious it was. And then regional shapes developed with the with with regional identities and competition of well, you do it this way and we do it that way, and ours is better. My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Jumping ahead into more modern um, history, there indeed there are a lot of, of regional dishes, and even those that make uh, pastas and fillings. But we, you know, getting into the whole filled pasta, and then we get into the dumpling dichotomy of you know whose you know whose pasta is pasta and whose is first. Um, but the types of regional pastas that are even made with um, different flowers, or not even a flower, but a grain. I'm thinking particularly of like pizzicati. Are there other regional pastas such as that that you can give us an example of, or, or tell us about pizzicati that are not made with um, 
well, they're just flower. very, or that are just very specific to a particular region. Um, there is a lot of, you know, with with rural revivalism and all of the um, the intensity of claiming shapes and foods uh, as yours and as a tradition. Um, it, it, it's it's very intense in Italy and saving. Both for for commercial and affective reasons, um, it 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 brings in money, saying this is our thing, and when you when you go to our town, this is what you need to eat. Um, so there are a lot of the pizzocchieri are are a pasta that is made with buckwheat. There mm-hmm. are there are other ones. Um, this wonderful dish from Friuli called lasagnette, little discs that are put into a um, uh, into a cocotte that are layered then with a with mushroom sauce and cabbage a lot of things that are known in their area this is this is kind of the sad thing that that I would like to for which I'm doing my work a lot of wonderful traditions um are eclipsed sort of in the way that in the way that heritage fruit and vegetables um, have been eclipsed and need to be not necessarily revived, but brought out into into the light, because there there are so many other things other than uh, than lasagna alla bolognese. Not that that isn't absolutely delicious, um, but um, and and with <laughs> partially with COVID and people are getting more specific about their um, about their things, but there are about about 1300 different pasta names huh. of which i think are a thousand or something of which there are probably then within that 300 different pasta shapes so that are so sometimes not even discernible okay? i was going to say there's got to be a fine line between a lot of those yeah, shapes very fine yeah. I mean, books Very have fine, been but even, written. Even if you think about, yeah, <laughs> and and I look at you know a lot of the books you'll look at, and they'll maybe only have fifty or a hundred shapes, and say, well, but I know that there's this other shape I had in this other village that you know was was mm, very mm, similar, mm. but the name's not there. Well, that has to do with with mm. dialect, obviously, and you know the regionality. Yeah. I would imagine um, amazing. So you think you think about thir- about three hundred different, really different shapes. 300 shapes that want to claim themselves as being different. Um, Now, if we're talking, for example, let's use the example of, um, sometimes it's about the relationship with the food because it doesn't just end with the shape. The relationship that a town has and the identity and the importance of that identity, peachy in Siena, hand rolled Mm -hmm. um, long pasta, now, now they're going to eat that um, classically with the tomato sauce made with aglione, the the very large. I think it's called elephant garlic in, right. uh, in the U.S. or something. But that very large um, garlic. It's a sauce with tomato and garlic. That's a, or, from the Valdichiana. Okay, so this garlic, and then there's all of this. Well, the garlic has to be grown in the Valdichiana and 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 etc. to get its terroir thing. So there's peachy, and then you go to Umbria, 
which um, has the same kind of shape, where they're called umbricelli. But the Umbrians are not going to be eating it with that Sienese sauce ever, okay? They're never going to take their umbricelli and combine it with that thing. They're going to put on, you know, maybe a, um, what's called a white, a white meat sauce, meaning that it doesn't have a tomato base, um, some other kind of thing. And that then that relationship, the relationship that they have with the pasta and the way that it's prepared already and also makes it something different. Right. Well, and interesting for our listeners to remember, too, is that, you know, um, which, you know, you talk about and we and we recognize, but that, you know, they think pasta and they immediately think tomato sauce. And of course, we know that, you know, that didn't come until way, you know, much later until the, you know, the 16th century easily. Um, so that's right. Um, the, the first. Right. So so you don't have tomatoes coming in and then com- then it took so long for them to be combined with um, with pasta. It just wasn't mm. a thing. The first recipe that you have putting together Durham wheat pasta with a very simple tomato sauce comes in 1837 with Ippolito Cavalcante. Um, so that's very late. Right. Um, putting so that so spaghetti spaghetti and, and um, interestingly, it doesn't associate. Even though it's a recipe coming out of, uh, from out of Naples, it's made with with um, lardo, so uh, cured fat back, and it's not made with olive oil. It it doesn't have meatballs in it. Um, so so, but the but tomatoes, of course, tomatoes took a very long time to catch on, also because. It was a, it's a flavor. And there's this, the suspicion about it being from the nightshade family. And That's so right. being poisonous. And then all of the occasions of trying the leaves instead of the fruit. And so those, of course, were, were um, poisonous and not tasty. So a lot of, of, of suspicion about it being from, from the Belladonna or nightshade family. Um, and took a while to, oh, it, it wasn't filling people's stomachs like um, corn polenta, that caught on much more easily because it resolved, it resolved a, um, a filling your stomach problem uh, amongst the poor in the North. Um, potatoes also took a long time, but for the reason that they were something that was grown underground and things that there was a hierarchy of foods, things that were grown underground were for poor people, did it take the the place then of something that was sacred like bread because it's another starch? So the problems there with potatoes as well um, catching on, even though they they caught on before tomatoes did. Right. Well, there there's so much more that we could talk about, and we can talk about. I mean, you do wonderful. <laughs> you do wonderful. Recreation of other dishes, not just pasta. But one question I wanted to to ask to see, I, and I don't even know if you if you have this, if this is documented, is when did um, pasta become uh, you know like a first course dish, a primo piatto in the structure of Italian meals? Okay, um, I don't know how much I, uh, how much time I have, so I'll try to go for it. Just go for it to address <laughs> that. Oh, okay, I'll just I'll just go for it. You can cut me off when you want. So I mean, because unfortunately, we do have to go back to the ancient Romans, Romans and say 
This was about conviviality, of separating a meal. They were very much about using food to establish civility and, um, and social class, separating uh, the riffraff from, uh, and separating themselves as Romans from the barbarians. Okay, so we have that. And um, the division of the meal into... You arrive and you have your nibbles and you have a little bit of mead and some molson, which is spiced wine. You mm -hmm. have your prima, prima mensa, your maybe two prima mensa and a seconda mensa. And then you get into your, um, your drinking. Um, so as that moves through time, that civility of remaining at the table because everything isn't brought out to you as if you were, you were being slopped. So, um, a, things are brought out in courses and there's entertainment, etc. And that was the way that, that the aristocrats ate. Um, and keeping in mind that people always aspired, regardless of our veneration of the rustic cuisine, etc., they did not venerate rustic. They always wanted to imitate their so-called betters. So moving through time, and that develops in a different way in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Um, and then you have after Bartolomeo Scappi, who is 1570, the um, hegemony of French cuisine. 200 years of a dominance of French culture that, that completely eclipsed um, Italian cuisine. France was the center of culinary culture. And as they developed, they did not have pasta, but what they have is soup. Soup right. is, is, uh, becomes very important as the first, first dish. So you have the developments in the 19th century of industrial, of industrial pasta. Pasta is becoming more available to people, okay? It's still not the, a dish of culinary identity also because it, that, that commercial pasta starts to be associated with Naples and um, cholera and filth and, and other sorts of things. So um, moving through time, the importance of soup, the importance of France... Um, having that as a first plate, what do you do with pasta? It doesn't have its own category. So it starts to be put into the soup category because there's a certain logic that says pasta is boiled in, in water or boiled in broth. It was often done in broth. Um, and so in that sort of way, let's just call it a soup. Una minestra. La minestra, which is a lovely word because it also comes from minestrare, which means to nurse people, to take care of people. It's, it's, it's kind of a very loving word. So um, when I first moved to Italy 30 years ago, there was the generation that was still calling pasta la minestra, still calling it soup, um, even though it then separated into being pasta asciutta and pasta in brodo, dry pasta that you eat without broth, and then, and then pasta in brodo, so... so. Right. Um, moving into the fascist era, there's you've got a, a very distinct break with, um, with France, even though it's going to take time for people who are still looking to France for um, fashion culture, for culinary culture. That's going to take a little bit of time. But Mussolini um, made that made the poor Italian foods, a venerated part because of his politics. 
He needed to look inward. He needed to have that autarky, that isolation of Italy. Um, we're going to forge on ahead on our own, which then he hooked up with, with Germany. But he needed people to embrace those poor foods, which is pasta, polenta, rice, um, potatoes, those sorts of things. Right. But you still don't have enough people who have enough money to be eating pasta all the time, let alone have a first course and a second course. So that really happens after World War II, um, because it, um, having, having done extensive research with uh, speaking with 90-year-old women, um, and that just wasn't something that people did. You just didn't have the money until the economic miracle took place. And then aspiring to eat like upper-class people meant having a first course and a second course. You didn't necessarily have the money to do it. And pasta was a cheap, um, a cheap way to eat, industrial pasta in particular, because that's when you have the, the changeover from making pasta by hand and buying it. Buying food became very important. Um, buying juice in a box be, meant that you had had money. Right. Um, your, your, you had, you had um, industrial pasta, and that meant you had leisure time. And time is what we don't have right now, unfortunately. Okay, but okay. There, and so there, there you so, go. Okay. And there is so much more information. And and your answer, you know, it, you basically got all the different factors in there from, you know, pasta is political okay. to, <laughs> to uh, um, pasta is also your money. So it, it has such a history right. and it is so wonderful. We can say it's the ultimate comfort food, <laughs> right? And um, I think that. Yes, absolutely. At this, at this point, we're going to leave it at that. And I wish you so much luck in your new project with a, a new book. And in the meantime, I look forward to your next post on one of your beautiful demonstrations <laughs> of, of your cooking. And uh, if you haven't had the chance to see um, Karima's wonderful work on Instagram, once again, her Instagram uh, handle is at historical Italian food. And Karima, it's always a pleasure to hear more information from you than I could possibly get in, in okay. months of studying, <laughs> right. years of studying. Karima Moyer Noki, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. I'm talking about a topic that I absolutely adore. So. I can tell. Thank you. <laughs> and again, this has been A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.